Hello, everybody, and welcome to Humanity First. Um, this week, we're concentrating on kids, um, as we should always be doing. But um, in many ways, this pandemic has been uh, particularly hard on um, the children, uh, the children's generation, and also the elderly as well, uh, just in terms of isolation, loneliness, and this shattered assumption of how life should be. Um, so Chris Ryan is in the studio today. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Peter, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, you know, in your travels around Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire and um, and as a parent yourself of some uh, preteens, I believe, um, uh, what's your take on this? You know, that's, we, the pandemic has been talked about every night on the news. We, you know, we hear the numbers from Dr. Fauci mm-hmm. and we hear people pushing back. In the meantime, you know, children have been out of school. Uh, they haven't been learning in the traditional way that they should have been. Parents have been isolated at home with kids. What are you seeing? What are you hearing when you're talking to people? So there's obviously some, some good news and some bad news, right, where, you know, for years we talked about how um, there was a disconnect at times between parents and their kids. And for, you know, some families, there's been a reconnection which has taken place and relationships, family relationships have gotten stronger you know, during that time period. Obviously in you know, broken home situations or in uh, abusive situations uh, where folks are living in poverty, um, you know, that's been extremely you know, problematic. But just, you know, anecdotally speaking, um, from my personal experience and uh, coaching, you know, youth baseball and stuff, there's been a, um, there's been a disconnect which has uh, taken place, and you know a a previous life has been interrupted in in some ways. Um, for the most part, that has returned, but you know in with, with COVID as well, there is this invisible enemy that you're facing, right? Where there's we've talked about it before for adults, like there it's a very much a, a mental battle, weighing um, you know your decisions. And the risk and reward of those things, having a Thanksgiving gathering with X amount of people, elderly, you know, how there's there's concern that goes into that that people just didn't, you know, think about before. But, you know, for kids, it's it's the mask stuff. It's a lot of the things around COVID just don't make, you know, much sense from a um, a black and white type of perspective. And one of the ones I've talked about a lot is the, the restaurant situation where, you know, you walk around the restaurant and and then all of a sudden you sit down, like, everything's cool. COVID's gone. I'm going to take off my mask. Um, and, you know, there's – with that, there's kind of that discussion of mitigating risk, right? Uh, and, you know, what do you do in certain situations uh, to mitigate um, to mitigate risk? Like, you don't eat chocolate all the time, even though you'd like to eat chocolate all the time. Same thing with, you know, not wearing a mask. But I think that for, you know, for the most part, um, the interruption – in the lives of kids and the disruption of the, in the lives of kids has been challenging for them. And also, again, it's, it's the fear of the unknown um, or the fact that they've gotten their lives back now. And what if the next variant comes along? What is that going to mean? Um, so again, like as is the case with all situations, each one is individual unto itself, but generally speaking, I feel like um, the disruption has been, challenging for kids and the fear of the unknown this invisible virus has been uh equally challenging yeah when you look at um some of the facts and and you know this is this is one of those things that you go of course but it is absolutely true that the more time 
children spend uh, in the classroom the more they learn. And what I discovered after reading a book recently about this is that children unlearn as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And those long summer periods for kids who don't have economic means Mm -hmm. is a a time of unlearning in many ways. And then there's a catch-up when kids go back to school uh, who have not had parents that have been able to tour them around France or, you know, uh, have a... And even if you were able to do that in the past, that stopped. That's That's where the disruption existed. So across the board, there was some you know, disruption in, in learning. And um, kids, you know, had the lives they were living before changed and they lost the, the privilege that they had had previous and were kind of back to a ground zero of being at home all the time and, and et cetera. I think that, you know, from an educational standpoint, you look at my, my youngest son's um, age group, that K through second grade group uh, during the course of the pandemic, and I have really significant concerns about um, their level of education because they had lost a, a year. And so how is that being you know, dealt with a year outside of the classroom? And you know, some kids are independent learners and you, you learn, learn things on your own. But a lot of that stopped as well. I mean, we for a year, kids were learning via YouTube and mm-hmm. their friends um, or they were just isolated through that time and, and nothing really happened. So – there is a lost year in you know the the youth of America that we have to reclaim. It's almost like um, America should, should almost um, uh, collectively hold their kids back for a year, you know, yeah. uh, because that would actually level a playing field um, yeah. in some ways uh, for the, all of those kids who who you know were not in advantage, advantageous situations at the moment. But I think it is true that that. Children are resilient, um, and with um, support, you know, the vast majority of children in America will move through this and look back on it as this rather quirky time in their in their in their lives where all of the fun stuff was curtailed. You know, I remember seeing last year, you know, all of these graduation ceremonies being cancelled, these markers in people's lives that they look back on, um, whether you know it was a great time or not. Everybody talks about their their graduation, yeah. their prom, and these these kids won't be doing that. My kids had two drive-by birthday parties, <laughs> which are the saddest things on earth. You you see your friends, but you can't spend any time with them. And they drive by in like half a second and wave, like, "Oh, there's Tim." That's <laughs> almost worse. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, it was very nice that everybody showed up, but the birthday party, like for my older my older son, there was it was in uh, April, so it was just right after the pandemic hit. The birthday party lasted like three minutes. Everybody drove by. They drove off. We staged them, and then that was it. And it was great to see everybody, and it was great to see like the tremendous amount of support for him. But it was sad in that you couldn't touch him. You could they were through a window. Like yeah. it was like the saddest yeah. thing. And you know, before we get to our guests, I want to talk a little about the um, elderly population as well, because for them it's a year lost as well, but a year where you know you're staring at the end of your life, and you're like. All the things I've lost, I was going to do, go here. I was going to go here. I worked, I worked hard my whole life so that I could tour Europe, and you know that didn't happen. I didn't get to see my kids. Um, you know, I've lost connection um, because you know, as much as we were able to adapt using technology, for some seniors and even some non-seniors, it's very challenging mm-hmm. for them. So, you know, for a senior, it's it's a year lost, and we also know that 
you know, as you're mentioning with young uh, kids learning, it's the same thing with with seniors, where if there's a year where you become isolated, that can be um, debilitating for your uh, your mental um, agility. And we really did find that with our brown bag food drive that um, we're still doing, of course, on third Thursday of the month uh, in the morning where – so look out for the flyers that come out about that. We're delivering food to elders in the um, tower blocks in Brockton. Uh, and you really are confronted by isolation and loneliness. You're probably the only person that that person's going to see for that week. Um, and then add on top of that um, the uh, uh, COVID, uh, it, it, you're absolutely right. It is a neglected population that we need to pay much more attention to um, and um, – these community groups and activities are really important in sort of bringing people together at that stage of their lives. Um, we uh, do, in the second part of our program, we are going to focus on children a little bit, and we're going to talk about, first of all, a lawsuit that was filed in 2004, which uh, really made the state of Massachusetts uh, concentrate on providing services for kids in their homes and in their communities rather than in high-intensity uh, residential programs and uh, hospitals. And we have three uh, folks, Bamsey folks, who are deeply embedded in the provision of that level of ser- uh, care and services. So um, they'll be up next. Yeah, looking forward to that. And you know, just a conclusion in this segment, you know, if you have the opportunity to to reach out to a family member or to a neighbor who is – you know, older during this time period, particularly as we're seeing an increase in in COVID cases, and um, they're being a little bit more hesitant about going out and perhaps uh, being socially engaged. You know, make sure you you check on them or create a, pa- a routine for, um, for for checking in, talking to them, um, you know, talking about politics or whatever. You know, the case may be keep uh, keep the mind fresh and so forth because it's really it's really important that we uh, we do that during what's obviously a challenging time period for. For seniors, generally, you know, the winter time. Uh, if you're not able to go down to, to Florida or wherever, if you're hunkering down here in Massachusetts, um, you know, it's it's a time we do get a little bit more isolated. So even without COVID, it's important to check in on folks. But without uh, further ado, I'm going to hand things back over to Peter. He's going to introduce our guests. Thanks very much, Chris. And uh, now we have some very special guests on the Humanity First podcast. Uh, Something that's been on a lot of people's minds over the past um, few months as we transition into new phases of COVID, I'm never really sure what to say about post or uh, COVID or whatever that is, but we're certainly in a new phase and that's been underlined by the um, identification of the Omicron um, variant uh, and what that's going to mean for us as a country. We're also, of course, in the middle of the political debate about vaccination, non-vaccination, and all of these things sort of swirl around us. And meanwhile, uh, many of our uh, local uh, community folks, um, brothers and sisters, are really struggling uh, with uh, post-COVID in terms of the long-haul effects of behavioral health. So I thought it would be great for us to have some of uh, those experts uh, come on the show and talk a little bit about what they're seeing and talk a bit about the history uh, of the CSA program and other CBHI programs. And we'll fill in the gaps about what those mean in a minute. But I'm really happy to have with us today Angela Cardozo-Fontes, who is our Director of Operations um, in the Behavioral Health and Children's Side, uh, Kat Stewart, who is our director of our CSA. Hi, Kat. Hi, Hi. Uh, hi Angela. And Laura Horton, who is our director of um, 
the Family Partner Program, which is this really new, and I'm not saying it's new, but if you look at the history of behavioral health and kids and work with kids, this idea of having family partners, I think, personally, is the most transformational thing that's happened in kids' behavioral health work uh, in the last, I'm going to say, 30 years. So no pressure on you, Laura, (laughs) but but you being a representative of that. So welcome uh, to the show, and I'm so glad um, to have you on. I'm so glad we're doing this just before the holidays when, um, you know, sometimes the emotional uh, demands on families uh, are intensified uh, at a time when you're thinking that perhaps they're going to be at their happiest. And they're not always like that when you approach holidays with issues that are hanging over you, such as, um, you know, uh, kids um, not being vaccinated, kids not being able to be in school, um, mums in many cases, because it is women who bear the brunt of this, who have had to give up their um, their day jobs to be teachers, to be nurses, to be, you know, everything to their kids. So it's a, it's, I think it's a, I think it's a prescient time to talk about this. And um, I guess I would ask or begin the conversation and maybe Angela, I can uh, start with you. Um, I re- I've been around long enough to remember 2004 uh, when a lawsuit was filed. It was called Rosie D. Um, I'm going yes. way back in the memory bank now. Uh, and I think it was against, um, uh, the governor at the time, um, Romney. Mitt Romney. I couldn't remember Mitt Romney's name. <laughs> Can you believe that? Um, Mitt Romney. Uh-huh. It was called Rosie D versus Mitt Romney. And the premise of that was that Massachusetts were not doing enough or providing enough community-based services for kids, that they were ending up in emergency departments for weeks and weeks. Correct. And by the way, they still are. Um, and we have we had not done enough to shore up or build our community presence for uh, services that weren't things like residential programs and hospitals. So, um, Anza, you can you talk a little bit about that? And I'd love to hear your impression about, you know, has this worked? Because what are we now, 16 years later and we're still managing this? Yes, 16 years later, we're still managing um, this. And uh, we had a court appointed um, that came out through uh, from the lawsuit. It was 13 parents um, they um, sued the state of Massachusetts uh, because their children did not receive the appropriate um, medical, um, mental health um, support. Um, so we're still in the midst of it, and we just learned, and I think Laura can correct me on this too, um, that um, the court appointee uh, was vacated too long ago. Yes. So, um, and, you know, the Mass Health continues to provide the support, the services to families. Now we have, uh, you know, many uh, private insurance, uh, Blue Cross, um, Tufts, um, Cigna, they all picking up the behavioral health piece as well. But primarily it was the um, Mass Health who was providing um, the CBHI services to families. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think of it as a great success in, in a lot of ways because I've seen yes. what's in other states where you have consent decrees. And actually, the state of Massachusetts said, we're going to put $500 million into this right at the outset. And in that, mm-hmm. in that way, um, and I remember as well, they brought in people from all over the um, all over the uh, the country. I, I remember Cappy Maddenwald, if anybody knows that name, came and talked about the MCI, the the building of the um, mm-hmm. the Children's um, uh, teams. Um, and so, 
Kat, maybe I could ask you, you know, the, the CSA, when it was conceived of, was really the idea was that it would be the focal point, the hub the, of those services, the traffic cop, if you like, around mm-hmm. how those services were, were delivered. Can you talk a little bit about how that works at the CSA and what CSA mm-hmm. stands for as well? Sure. Yeah. So CSA stands for Community Service Agency. And um, under that is ICCs, which is Intensive Care Coordinators, and then Family Partners, who Laura can talk about. And Intensive Care Coordinators, you know, Traffic Cop, we also think of them as sort of the coach of the team. And what they can do is oversee the clinical care for these families and for their youth to make sure that the family's vision, which is what we always are focused on, is getting achieved and certain clinical benchmarks are getting met. And if for some reason there's... um, you know, disagreements between the team members or the families advocating for the families to kind of help them learn how to um, discuss these concerns and get the treatment that they, they need for their kids and also managing crisis, you know, helping the family walk through that process, which obviously can be very difficult um, and help them give them the tools to be able to do this long term because, you know, it is something that their kids are going to most likely have to deal with on a long term basis. So these CSAs are all over the state. There's a network yep. of them, and we provide mm-hmm. services in our uh, area, which is the Brockton area and, and beyond. Um, yep. And, you know, the idea, the, the really amazing idea about it when it started was that these were not necessarily Medicaid billable services because they were mm-hmm. outside the scope of medical necessity. Mm-hmm. And, and as we've moved into a population health world where we say it's not, you know, you can't isolate the health of a child or a family that, that that health exists in an environment, which uh, we call the social determinants of health that bear down on the health and wellness of those families. And also, and you know, I always, we always need to include in the conversation, the, the issue of health equity and uh, social justice um, in terms of how we deliver services. And I believe that we've, we've done a lot um, of, we've done a lot of work um, to address some of those through these uh, community-based interventions. Um, I know that I'm speaking to three people who believe very much that the work we do is all about social justice as well. Um, do you feel that that kind of um, that kind of ability to get out of big institutions and into communities has helped the issue of inequity as we look at uh, uh, children's services? Uh, I'll ask. Uh, sorry, I'll ask uh, Kat that, and then then I'd like to uh, flip that over to Laura. Sure. I think yes, because I think it allows the providers to see truly what the families are going through and the inequities that are sort of right there in your face. You can't turn away from it when you're in someone's home and you can see what they're actually living through. Mm -hmm. So I think yes, but I I do think there is still a deficit in terms of the clinical care that we have to then try to connect these families to. Um, And I think that is still something that seems to be a big issue and still is a big sort of um, spotlight on the inequities that are still there. So I think it's sort of twofold. Yes, we can see it. I think we have a better understanding of it. It's right there. You can't turn away from it, but I think it does still make our jobs harder to try to connect families to services that aren't always available um, to them, you know, when they need them because of 
insurance requirements or, you know, transportation needs or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And Laura, just that question again, but with a, with a sort of concentration on, well, you know, when I started out in this business, which was, you know, you know, a century ago, it was quite a long time ago. Um, and I, and I did kids clinical work. It was often in a vacuum. It was often that, you know, the kid would be dropped off. You would speak to the kid. And then, you know, there's this idea like fix, fix this kid and the family's fine. I think, you know, as we've, as we've gone through and learn more and more about family dynamics, you know, when you, when you look at the Milan school of, of therapy, which is this idea of everybody moves. If so, if one family member moves, they all do. And, and all of that is about sort of working with families to find their best way forward. Um, do you, do you find that um, that sort of more inclusive and, and the support of parents who in many cases are going through really difficult situations themselves aside from what and sometimes sometimes the messenger is the child right but they're going through all, you know all sorts of things and that might be uh, economic hard, hardship it might be domestic violence it might be um, you know managing a family and working at the same time talk a little bit about how the fa- family partners um, act to support, uh, uh, parents as they are uh, going through this, uh, whatever situation with their families. Thank you. Um, I, I think I appreciate the opportunity. I think I'm very passionate about the role, passionate about the services, passionate about the process. Um, and I think for, uh, for when, when we're speaking of this, going out into the community as Kat referenced, going into the homes, um, we're seeing firsthand, you know, um, and, you know, even just talking about the basic needs, you know, um, a child may be having some challenges at school, but if they're homeless and they're living in a shelter, if those basic needs aren't addressed, then, you know, we're never going to get to the core challenges um, that the child faces. Um, the family partner role is someone that has kind of has the lived experience. We've kind of walked walk the walk, so to speak. Um, so going and meeting with um, parents, caregivers, we work with you know uh, grandparents, we work with aunts and uncles um, who are raising a child who has a mental health diagnosis. Um, but we're able to connect on, on a level where we kind of understand. Uh, we're able to share uh, what we describe as with purpose and intent uh, when we're working with families. Not that we have the answers, but we want to be able to be there to support them, to kind of hold the hope for them um, as they kind of learn how to navigate, how to access supports uh, from the basic needs of housing, maybe applying for SNAP benefits, um, understanding um, school challenges, to then, you know, bigger pictures about how to access the clinical supports. Mm -hmm. And then we partner with the intensive care coordinators so we're all on the same page. Yeah, I know. I mean, I just going back to that school thing, you know, negotiating school systems when you have a child who has um, mental health issues is incredibly complicated, um, even for somebody who, you know, has a lot of support. So I would imagine sort of negotiating that. And of course, every school district is different, isn't it, in terms mm-hmm. of how yes. they have resources, how they define uh, what ed plans are, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, that kind of support is incredible. And you know, Harvey Milk once said that, you know, you can't solve everything uh, with hope, but without hope, you can solve nothing. And I think that is such an important piece 
that the family partners bring, that there is a vision of uh, recovery. There's a vision of wellness. There's a, a vision of a return to um, a, a less chaotic world, if you like, that uh, we all know that families find themselves in at times. And I would say most families find themselves at some point uh, in some sort of chaos. But, you know, when you sort of layer on all of those inequities that we've we've talked about before, it's um, it's a whole different ballgame. And I, I really do believe that the community-based work, which is centered around the community service agencies, is incredibly important for uh, holding families together and keeping kids out of a higher level of care. And if you want to know if something's mm-hmm. successful, look at the number of kids that are in residential and in long-term hospitalization program, hospital programs now compared to 2003. Uh, and it's yes. night and day. It has absolutely transformed the system. And a kid can't go to baseball practice or piano lessons when they're inpatient. You know, that that is the that is the crux of it and so i just you know thank you for the work that you're all doing because it's so important for this next generation of um the commonwealth's um citizens um so let's just um let's talk about now um because you know we were all minding our own business and then in march 2020 um (laughs) Something happened. I can't remember whatever it was, but it changed the world and it changed how we did our work. And it and it absolutely made the plight of those people who were less well off even worse. Um, OK, so we're in December of 2021. Um, what are we looking at now? What are you seeing in, in families that is really concerning you about some of these long haul effects? And maybe, Angela, I'll start with you for a, a bigger picture. So the bigger picture what we're seeing right now is um, a youth, a, many um, youth and families struggling, continue to struggle with mental health. And um, to the point that the waiting list is right now uh, a bit, uh, we have some um, outpatient clinics and even um, some of the CBHI um, providers uh, with a waiting list of three to six months. And um, that's something that we didn't have prior to um, to the pandemic. And um, that just shows um, the need and, you know, how stressful, um, as we all know, the pandemic has been in the shortage of um, services out there to families. Um, right now in December 2021, I think we, we are a little better than December 2020 because at least we have the children's in the school. Yeah. Um, I mean, it puts a little bit of stress on the school, but especially for children with mental health, they need to be in a structured um, program, I should say. Um, and uh, it, it relieves a little bit of stresses um, on the parents as well, because as you mentioned um, earlier, um, parents during the pandemic, they became teachers, they mom, they are, you know, tutors, and um, they are technology <laughs> expert. So um, they did it all. And, um, and that uh, now we've seen the effect uh, or the impact, I should say, that it put on, on the parents and on our youth as well. Um, because, um, and especially with children with mental health, I mean, I myself, um, I am a clinician, but I don't think I'm able to teach um, students 
with mental health and especially if they, you know, are on the IEP uh, program. So they need that specialized, you know, um, trainers um, in order to teach us in, in order to instruct them. So it, it was it was a bit. Um, but at least, I mean, now um, we can see a little bit of that relief. Um, they are in school. I mean, it's a bit strict because of, you know, we're still in the midst of uh, a new variant and it's a very concerning. Um, but I think the schools are doing the best that they can. I think, you know, Massachusetts in general doing the best that you know, we can. So and I, I do think that we, you know, Massachusetts, we are a bit, you know, ahead um, of many other states. So I think that's um, big a, picture. <laughs> a big picture. Yes, uh, because if you know really things into perspective, you know uh, we are doing better than other um, other states. Yeah, I, I you know I, I really believe kids should be in school, and and those kids who don't have resources or parents who have resources go backwards because we all know that if you have resources, you're hiring teachers who weren't working at the start of the pandemic, and those kids and that gulf was getting better. So I am glad that that you know kids are back in school. Um, Kat, what do you see? What do you see on a daily basis that really worries you about about going forward? And actually, what do you see that gives you hope that you know we are going to move through this? Mm. So I think one of the things I'm seeing is that you know there was the transition period back to school, and I agree. I think that is huge for kids. They need to be in school. They need to have that structure, be around their peers, things like that. But I do feel like there is this um, sort of catch up anxiety catch-up, depression catch-up, where they're starting to now sort of really take stock of what they were going through. And I think on some level, they were able to sort of push through that, through the height of the pandemic. And now that things are kind of settling down a little bit, they're having to deal with the anxiety, the depression, the lack of social connection that they had for the past year and a half. And I do see that kind of bubbling up to the surface and kids who maybe never had, were, were you know, maybe typically not going to cross through the mental health system is now crossing over. And for, you know, some of the parents, they don't know what to do. Um, so I, I do think there's going to be this massive sort of shift where, you know, kids are going to need some level of support to deal with, you know, the trauma, the collective trauma that they've all gone through. Um I was reading something today that said, you know, Gen Z, 13 to 24, are at the highest level of sort of negative experiences from this pandemic, mental health issues, social issues, academic, and all those kind of things, because that age group is such a, you know, you're going through such important changes at that point. But I think for hope, kids are also very resilient, and they have already gone through a lot, typically, you know, in their lives, and so they will get through this too. Um, so I do feel hopeful that it's going to be hard, but I think we'll get, you know, we'll get through the other side of it. Yeah. It's interesting when you look at PTSD definitions, right? And if, if there is a collective group of people going through an experience together, the actual intensity of the PTSD is, is reduced. And it is something that I'm not contradicting myself about how the, you know, the, um, how it's affected people differently, but everybody has had a, a taste of what it's like to be in lockdown uh, and what it's like 
not to do the things that we assume that we can do. So, you know, maybe that is a bit about the, of the hope that these stories are, are somewhat collective, um, you know, in terms of how people have gone through it. Um, but I couldn't agree with you more. Kids are resilient. Um, parents, maybe not so much sometimes when there's so many other things bearing down on them, Laura. And, you know, as you, I mean, I guess I'd ask you the same question, you know, what, what gives you hope uh, and what really troubles you about the next six months, the next year, as we uh, as we look at continued uncertainty, um, and we look at the long haul effects of what we of what our families have been through? I think um, what what gives me hope is that I think like um, that parents and, and caregivers they are resilient. Um, I think it's hopeful when they when they are able to reach out when they are able to connect to other parents, uh, to, the, to the resources and the programs like the CSA that's out there. Um, a, a lot of the referrals that we, we did receive during COVID were of, um, as Angela said and Kat had said, that you know parents that may have never even had experiences with a child who has uh, some challenges. Um, so I think opening it up to a, to a conversation where um, people are, are able to understand and they're not afraid to reach out for help, you know, is, is one thing that I think is hopeful. Um, I think some of the, the challenges throughout were, um, you know, parents having to adjust um, from, you know, the, the, the regular routine to then kind of the lockdown mode. Um, I think that... Um, you know, it was not, none of us were prepared. Um, I, th I think, you know, one of the things that I realized with our CSA staff is we rallied around our parents um, to really help connecting them with resources to, um, you know, adapting to Zoom, helping them to adapt to Zoom, uh, helping them to um, communicate with the schools while their kids were home. Um, one of the things I think is, uh, a lot of the parents that were unable to work, um, who didn't have um, the benefits and the flexibility of a job that they could work from home or they could take sick time. Um, so a lot of the parents had to give up their work and then their home. Um, that I think is is something that, you know, as we kind of uh, move forward and we're adapting um, is what is it gonna look like for those families who need to return to work um, but are either unable to or, you know, the, their job is no longer there. Um, I think those are the things that I worry about, along with uh, the services and, and, you know, how we're making referrals and, and what is out there right now. The wait list are long, yeah. Um, but yeah. it's a conversation that we have continuously. Yeah, and we'll continue to uh, have into the future as we... Yes face issues of um of workforce and and qualified folks um but you know i do as, as we finish now i do think that um that i think the behavioral health world has been tapping the world on the shoulder for years and years and years saying we need to pay att more attention to mental health mm -hmm. and behavioral mm -hmm. health as in a whole because that's the the human body is connected to the mind um and if if anything good's come out of this i think a lot more people understand that and um mm -hmm. And the work that you do is invaluable. Um, it continues to be. Um, and even though the settlement is now, um, the, the Rosie D settlement has been uh, dismissed, I'm sure that the state of Massachusetts will stand behind the work that's been done because it's been truly 
transformational. So thank you so much, Kat, Angela, and Laura, for giving up uh, 20, 25 minutes of your time this morning. It's been really great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for coming on. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate